namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammaha sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammaha sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammaha sambuddhassa udangdhammang sanggang namasami So when we come around to practice of Dhamma, as perhaps as many of us have experienced it or been inspired by it, or interested in it, felt a value in it, often it comes around to just this one point when you recognize you can, you can come out of your engagement, your thought process, your emotional push, your energy, you can step back, you can witness it. You can come out of the noise of your mind. Not necessarily make it quiet, but at least you can step back from it. And, oh, it's that. Um, we can st- we can step back from our perspectives and review them. You know, we can have a particular set of ideas and just instead of following the ideas, step back and recognize oh, what the, what are these doing to me? Um, this particular. F- function of mind or faculty of mind the ability to step back and review so I think it's uh, viveka sense of non non-engagement non-involvement often associated with the sensory contact we can feel the kind of sights and sounds that excite or repel us and we can at that moment oh that's just that instead of following it particularly important with the flow of our ideas and moods which are very compulsive and sometimes put incredible pressure on us you know what's the meaning what's the purpose of life what am I doing why am I not happy how do I get to be happy what's the answer to what's going on what should I do Uh, why are people this way or that way remembering the painful things we have been experiencing experiencing in our lives feeling driven not knowing where to turn there's senses of suffering essentially and you're trying to find an answer to that what's the answer to that where's the way out of that how does it stop help (laughs) and you know and then the most immediate practice of Dhamma is well can you just just step back from that and notice the suffering notice it's that dukkha there is dukkha, there is this stress, pressure, demand, incompleteness. And that stepping back, we're not trying to figure it out or get an answer. Because you know, if, if we could get an answer, we'd have got it by now. 
So it's just this ability to, oh, that's that's the turmoil. That's the sense of that, and we notice that. Yeah. There's also quite a, a lot of dumber practice is just about being able to. That's where it starts from. Maybe it's a direct experience. Perhaps we've read, studied, been inspired, been interested. You know, what's all this Buddhism about? You know. But then it comes down to doing it. Is that is that bit what it takes to be able to do that? Sometimes it's just ten seconds. Here. Gracious me, what am I? What am I in? Often re- the responses we come up with is how to change it, how to fix it, how to cure it, how to get an answer to that. It's a cognitive process. We feel emotional pang or emotional turmoil and we look for some cognitive, some idea, some, well, it's one of those, what you need to do is this. It's like that, what you need to do is that. Now, now you know, these are, you know, so we're looking for something as an answer. Sometimes we get it right. But the main cognitive response is, is um, that the Buddha provides is, this is something that has to be looked at, met, reviewed, understood, rather than something we move away from, something we, you know, come up with some pat ideology around, figure out. We have to, in a way, meet it, witness it, open up to that, know it for what it is. Because it always feels like me and them and the world and other people, and the things I'm not good at, and the things I should have done, and what other people are not good at, what they should have done. It always seems very personal, and it's configured that way. And I guess when you go through the people sit around and swap their stories, and you listen to everybody's story, you think, oh, it's just that. It's the same disease. <laughs> just different, you know, different names, different characters, but it's always this sort of agitation and uh, irritation or desperation or feeling weighed down or burdened it's a felt it's a felt experience you can't really resolve felt experiences just with an idea the the cognitive stuff the ideas can help you l- remember the means to handle that felt experience but basically your felt experience has got to be met by feeling it which is what we don't, generally don't want to do. It's too upsetting, too disturbing. But then the point of stepping back is that when we do that stepping back, that non-attachment, that unhooking from where we should be, from the future, from the past, from other people, from the ideologies, from what I, and so forth, trying to find an answer, just say it's like this, that you notice this quality somewhere in there, there's a quality right at the back of that, there's a quality just awareness. There's the witness we call sometimes called the witness, this awareness. There's the particular emotional turmoil and energies and movements, and there's this sense of, well, that's that. And if you step right back, you come back to that. So one... One line of practice is often just 
keep referring things to awareness called sati sampajanya. Sati, bear something in mind, sustain it, keep it there, remember it if you like, or it's like remembering the present, really stay with that. And then, so you, you, you know what it is, you're holding it clearly. And then refer it to awareness, or sampajanya. How does it feel? Referring it to awareness. And then we have this awareness. Part of the construction or part of what jitta, mind, heart is about is awareness. The other aspect of what it's about is formations or sankara. It's forming things. It's creating things. It's moving stuff around. It's organizing things. It's remembering things. It's shaping things up. It's full of impulses, instincts, intentions, inclinations, trembling, shivering, shaking, rushing. So it's an energetic experience and also it's an awareness experience. It's sankara and it also has this quality of knowing or jnana. You know, yeah. So, you know, and the one of the, you know one kind of model of Buddhist practice is you use your your energies, your your actions, your mental skills, your mental activities to keep bringing things back to this quality of awareness, so it can be held there, sensed, reviewed. Many times, it's just doing that, and. Sometimes in that the, that particular thing just starts to dissolve. Think, oh, oh well, life's like that. Oh, it's not really a problem. Or, oh yeah, you know, we we sort of come out of it because of the problems themselves are also sankharas. They are in our minds. There are these repeated um, formations. You should probably recognise these nagging voices, these repetitive whirlpools of moods and emotions. That can be have patterns you can recognise, you know, strongly, strongly tendencies towards, you know, irritation or towards despair or towards doubt or towards worry, passions. And we have, uh, you know, people have different profiles. We will have these these formations, these uh, karma formations or volitional tendencies. The English language is not that good at it, really, but we can talk about these as kind of the energies, emotional energies, uh, roughly speaking, inclination, volitional energies. So all that stuff is just this kind of spinning, buzzing. And once you come out of the story, if you just stop the story and feel the push of the feelings, the push of the energies, and then, what's that? Where? How am I, how am I with that? You know, referring that to awareness, just becoming aware of this spinning, moving pushing out, feeling flattened, all that. And sometimes just doing that, it's rather like you've got a particular um, current of electricity or, or like a magnetic current spinning and you refer it to a neutral point and it just starts to discharge. Awareness, we could say, in this model, is, in, is the neutral point. It's just ground, zero. And you, so whenever you touch that, the energy starts to dissolve, undo. Yeah. And that's that's one way of that's metaphor and analogy of it. But when you practice it yourself, you notice that, you know, this is what there's a sense of calm, of clarity that arises. When we find the time and the occasion to get the skills to be able to hold our frustrations or our 
doubts with awareness. It's not adding more to them, not blaming them, not changing anything, not should, should, just aware of that. It's amazing remedial quality. Sometimes when you're doing meditation, it's just like all this stuff has come bubbling up and the we don't always handle with awareness sometimes we just go under, get submerged in it or thrash around in it. But the optimum is you can find a way sometimes just by coming to the your sense of your body where that mindfulness is able to hold steady. So part of, you know, the, not all the mind is being involved with that. There's some sense of the mind is also referring to something steady where these energies are not, can discharge and you just feel... You, know, you don't really get an answer, but you get a result. The result is release clarity. So quite a bit of it is about how we, we deconstruction of suffering, stress. Stress is not a person, it's not a thing, it's an activity. As it's an activity, it's an activity that can stop. If it wasn't an activity, it couldn't stop. It was a thing you know, you'd have to be thinking of getting rid of it. But activities aren't things you get rid of. They're things you stop doing. <laughs> so the very activity of trying to get rid of something is another activity. You know, so you don't want to have... Activities don't do it. It's the, it's the release, the relinquishing of activities that does it. Which means we also have to you know, release that wishing to get rid of things. Because that just puts more spin on it. As well as, of course, the inclination to make more of it or get involved with it. So it's it's this incredible opportunity, which is rare in our normal psychology as to train in it, because most of the time we're swinging between wanting more of something, wanting less of something, figuring something out, you know, to shrugging something off and not really dwelling in this uh, full mindful awareness sometimes it's just the, the stuff is just too too much we can't make it we can't manage it so we have to just basically sideline it mm-hmm. deconstruction what also <coughs> helps is to you know, which is complementary is that the Dharma practice is also about what we deliberately construct Sounds kind of artificial. Or deliberately encourage, deliberately inclined towards, setting up deliberate, carefully considered, wise formations, such as kindness, such as patience, such as um, moral sensitivity towards oneself, towards others. So, you know, if we just look at that, the previous map of how we let go of things, it can make it seem like all we need to do is just wait for everything to stop. <laughs> and you get into slightly, when you, when you interpret that, it sounds kind of like nearly all you can do is just sit back and hope everything stops. But that, which is, you know, what are we going to do? You know, that comes to be the point, isn't it? Maybe in meditation you might do that. Then we're moving around their daily lives. You can't walk, you know, you've got to start activating, organizing, 
responding, picking things up. So this is also a major part of the practice. How to pick up and sustain skillful inclinations. The two complement each other because in both cases you are derailing negative uh, uh, constructions, you know, which is the basic, you know, say the bottom line of it. You're dismantling negative constructions by referring to awareness. And then as we come into how we act, respond, relate, then it's from that place of awareness, you know, really trying to be as truly authentic with what is um, the skillful. What leaves the best results? What enables us to become less tangled, less dense, less complex, less heavy? Now, the way the mind normally creates things is we establish particular perceptions. Like you see something and you think, oh, the first time you see it, it's fresh, it's new. And then you learn what it is. First time you meet somebody, it's fresh and new. Then you learn, oh, this is Jack or Sam or Susan or something. And then you start to fill in the gaps, the blank. This is Susan, she likes curry and she does this, that and the other. This is Harry, he's got some sense of humour, or thinks he has a sense of humour. And so on. And it gradually fills in these dense perceptions of Harry and Susan. So the next time you see them, you, you, you refer to this perception. This is Susan. What's she going to do now? And so eventually what happens is you're hardly seeing the person afresh. You're seeing them. You're basically, as soon as you see them, it triggers off your perception of them. Yeah? And the same with all the situations. So, so we start to refer more to what our minds have constructed about people than something more immediate. And of course, yeah, that's, there's a reason for that. It, it, it makes things tidier in a way. We can talk about things, we can organise things, we can have rough ideas about things, but it, there's a price that we pay in that. In that these constructions stay in your mind. You built them in there. And you're walking around with Susan and Harry and Dick and Joe and what happened five years ago and what they never do. They're stuck in there. <laughs> and they keep, you can't, you know, they keep coming up and talking to you. Are you talking to them? And you have a little row with them every now and then. Oh, I told him this, that and the other. So you've got these people in your head. And you probably have a perception of yourself, probably one, several of them, you know. So there's this whole kind of chorus of stuff, perception, perceptual beings, talking with each other, arguing with each other, hashing over the wrongs and rights that they've committed towards each other, the tribunals. And, and so your life gets very dense. And some of that sense of the freshness, the immediacy, where our mind feels bright and open and you know, responsive is lost. We've sacrificed a kind of a convenience. We've sacrificed our joy for our convenience. We've sacrificed our sense of wonder and immediacy for our organisation and classification. Mm-hmm. There's always uh, there's always a bit a 
trade-off there, one way or another. You see what the mind, the mind's nature is to construct these. And what is most important in, constru- in, in really getting to the basis of what the mind, the mind is going to do this, is its nature. It must do this. It must, a mind is an organizer. It must assemble these sense data into some kind of workable reality of me and you and time and place. Yeah, it's going to do that. It's supposed to do that. Otherwise, you're crazy. You can't do that. But instead of organizing around perceptions, you want to organize it more inclined towards what's the quality of intention. That is, is my intention masked with, uh, you know, ill will, worry, fear, doubt? Does this feel good? Is this what I want to be with? Is this what I want to bring forth? Could I bring forth something that really feels good? Uh, Generosity, uh, kindness, sharing, modesty, you know, fill in names, whatever you like. Something you feel really is good. That if you had to stay with that, it wouldn't feel sour. If you had to take, you know, lengthen that intention and really live with it, you'd feel comfortable. It wasn't manipulative, it wasn't dismissive, it wasn't, ah, shit, you know, it wasn't crooked, it was straight, it was as straight as you, you know, as you could be. And that, so this is really the cultivation, not of deconstruction, but of careful construction. And again, I'm making it much too mechanical, it's not really careful, but careful bringing forth, bhavana, cultivation, growth, look at more something organic, bringing forth the beautiful. And so it's the combination of those two that that starts to both uproot our negative growths, called outflows or asava, I mean, there's stacks of lists of these things, with the more positive ones, paramita, parami, um, perfections, virtues, skills, uh, and so forth. So that what can happen is that our life becomes much more integrated. So we're not just, uh, you know, this is all a bit of a show, go back to the place where it all stops and then comfortable. Occasionally I come out and do things out here, which is a bit of a waste of time, and I go back into my kind of quiet space, where you've got a very strong division between, you know, the level of constructed forms and purposes and time and place and me and you and some other place where that kind of passes. So, and if that's not integrated, then something is going wrong. There's some defilement, there's some blockage, there's some, you know, some, why, why are we not able to enter this world, this apparent world, not holding on to it, not claiming it, not believing in it, but just with purity, as this is where we are. So we're going to live it. And if you like, this is where the Buddha presents the, the Dhamma and the Vinaya. And the Vinaya we can consider as a kind of monastic code of conduct, but in its more full terms it means the way of living it, the way of living the Dhamma way of bringing it out in terms of 
relationships, responsibilities, uh, requisites, possessions, um, and so forth. Mm. Communities, consciousness in terms of communities of other people, of who one is as a relative individual. So, you know, the, the Buddha, when he taught, he didn't teach Dhamma, he said, I teach Dhamma Vinaya. So it was, it was the two together, if you like. So, and the Vinaya as a theme is a sense of what do we, how do we bring forth? What do we bring forth in terms of our behavior, our society? How do we manifest as individuals? How do we belong to or feel a sense of, Sharing, concern, boundaries with other people. Very important sense to get, because it's going to happen anyway. And we're looking really at the qualities of intentions. So one thing, the, the training rules we have, do they do help us to look, to pause, to check the qualities of our intention. They are, there is a system there. Such as, you know, monks, we're not allowed to eat in the evening, we're not allowed to demand, you know, monks and nuns are not allowed to demand requisites, you're allowed to ask for water, um, robes if you've lost them all. If you start naked, you can ask for, I think, two, two robes. At least, you know, you can't ask for all three, you can ask for two. So, you know, in some, some sense, of there are, you, you can ask, you can't demand, but you can at least ask. You can make yourself available for alms food. You can't really start demanding anything. So that gets you to look at once your sense of, um, you know, how you are with other people. Also, very important, it gets you to look at your sense of rights. And your sense of laws. Because, of course, with the Vinaya, we can start looking at it as a system of laws. And, yeah, that, you, yeah, that's one way of defining, I suppose. But the Buddha, you know, the term Vinaya was, was a, seemed to be a, an expression around in religi- Indian religious practice at that time, before there were any rules. It was just the basic understanding of how do you live your Dhamma. How do you live in a way that breaks up, dispels the kind of hindrances that will, the attachments that happen when you start to touch this world? You know, when you touch it and you get stuck in it. And the veneer is that which literally leads to the dispelling of that getting stuck in it or dismissive of it or negative about it or greedy about it in terms of your behavior. And the Buddha wasn't too keen apparently on establishing rules. It took him 20 years or so to start doing so, and he said, well, we don't do it until we need to. Because everybody, if they're in tune, if they've got the basic message, then that's fine. And then the rules were then created purely in terms of what happened, not from some preconceived structure, organisational structure, but just something happened, the Buddha said, well, that was off, that was wrong, you missed the point there, you shouldn't do that. And so it's very, it's a series of accidents, really. A record of accidents. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not some 
kind of system that Buddha worked out, but a record of just how people got it wrong in that, in that day. It points to certain fundamental qualities, problems we all have. You know, greed, possessiveness, passion, irritation, competition, acquisition, territorial ownership, you know, all that sort of stuff. Where the qualities of uh, what the Buddha was trying to, why he didn't well, my interpretation, if you like, what I suggest you can consider why he didn't create a set of rules for its own sake. Uh, was it something more important or something before that, which is our sense of empathy, concern, mutual concern. Here we are on this planet. This planet you know, is sustaining our life. We are, as human beings, if we look after each other, it's going to be okay. Can you imagine a planet of 7 billion people cooperating with each other and helping each other. Wouldn't be, pretty, wouldn't be any problems, would there? If we all just shared and looked after each other. We, we know what that feels like to do it to one or two others. How come we don't do it to 7 billion? Because, <laughs> you know, because the level of uh, trust and morality is rather diminished. And also our, our level of our range of our empathy is rather restricted. We like the people who are like me, my group. Yeah. So that broadening that is something that can occur through the process of Dhamma when you recognize we're all brothers and sisters in aging and death. We're all people who have difficulties and get angry and upset and so forth. So something like compassion can replace a sense of judgment and so on. But what so often, this sense is called, um, you know, a sense of community concern for the welfare of others is, uh, is guarded by something called otapa, which means our remorse, at having abused or, you know, acted with improper intentions towards others, the sense of having lost their faith, lost their trust, you know, they feel nervous about us, they feel distaste towards us, that seems we've lost something beautiful that could happen. And the other sense that it guards uh, the, the moral, empathic field is the hiri, which means also I've degraded myself, I've let myself down. That was cheap, you know, I could have done... That was, yeah, I know, that was really a bit off, and that's not good for me. Yeah. And so it's a, so these, these transform into a quality of self-respect, which is, because you, you value yourself, you don't want to mess yourself up. And because you value others, you don't want to mess them up. So this is the way, then these act as proper reference points for our intention, which is the real you know, purpose, how we come forth. How is your intention? Do you have a sense of respect for yourself, respect for others? Sometimes it kind of swings that you've got a lot of respect for yourself and a lot of respect for others. <laughs> 
or, or you know, so it's all well, you know, doesn't feel right for me, and da 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 da, da and my, it's that my own welfare becomes more important. And the other extreme is when you've got it for everyone else, but you don't really have it for yourself, so you get this kind of compassion fatigue. Yeah. And the balance of that. And where it goes, where it gets, uh, when we lose the quality of direct intentionality, direct sense of what arises from the heart, these get replaced by rights and laws. Yeah. So the sense of self-respect comes, it's my right. And the sense of, of the group is held by laws. You should behave according to the law. And this is my right. And you're going to feel how kind of ugly <laughs> those terms are. However, you know, necessary they may be in, you know, when people are getting violated, you may be able to say, it's my right to, you know, say what I want to say, if you're really in some tyranny or something. But it's, it's uh, unfortunate when we have to review our lives in terms of rights or walk around saying who, who you know, quoting the law at each other. Because this is removing it from the quality of our intention into something quite abstract. And it's that whole tendency of the mind to, to replace the direct, felt, fresh experience that's happening now with some abstract model of myself, you, right, wrong, good, bad, so forth. We're, we're still looking at things through... The, through the level of our perceptions and views, which is convenient. Don't have to feel what's going on. Don't have to work it out. I've just got some pre-established my right to do this. But you see how abused that gets. Because rights sounds, sounds convincing. Human rights. I was looking at an article today, somebody was saying the, the right to euthanasia. That we have a right to decide when we want to terminate our lives. It's a human right. You shouldn't be forced to stay alive if you don't want to. It's your right to snuff it. If you're in some degraded situation, you think, suddenly you think, mm, yeah, mm, mm, I suppose people do, but then you realise, no, hang on. It's the wrong term. It's not rights we're looking at. It's values. You know? and you say it's a softer thing. It's much less hard and fast. It's much less abstract. People do what they do. But when you start saying you've got a right to do it, <laughs> then you don't look at your intentions. Like you say, it's my right to park my car here. You don't look at the actual situations happening and think, well, maybe it'd be better to offer it to somebody else. It's my right to stay here rather than, well, maybe it'd be better to really look at you know, your intentions. And with things like euthanasia, this is a pretty, diff- you know, uh, dangerous thing to start claiming rights around. 
particularly if you're going to help somebody else commit euthanasia. <laughs> so if you're right to kill yourself, Uncle Harry, I'll help you. <laughs> you know? So it's not that I'm you know, personally going to be kind of condemning people for whatever they do is what they do, but it's just to look at it in terms, not so much of rights, but of what's really valuable. What's sensitive? What's, what's your intention? Yeah. And then you have to know your intention. Not, so you can't make it abstract. Same thing with laws. In, you know, in, in the Buddhist teaching, you have many, many moral guidelines. And you have things that are pure convention, like is driving on the left right or correct and driving on the right incorrect well depends on which country you're in doesn't it these are not moral these are just con- matters of convention but generally if, if everybody else is driving on the right it's considered uh, morally sensitive to drive on the right as well <laughs> uh, but, you know, when your mind starts to talk about right, wrong, just, justice, terrible term. You know. Justice generally means kill people. <laughs> Revenge, you know. And yet it's a term that carries some, you know, it has some positive meanings to it. We want to make sure we're living properly and uh, so on. There's proper dealings with people. But you see the things that get done in the name of justice and, and uh, law, the executions and the bombings and the atrocities that get c- c- committed in the name of justice because you don't have to connect it to your intention. Yeah? It's just there as an abstract fact. Yeah? This is part of the, why it's so, imp- so important to, to cultivate that what arises from awareness, not just descending, you know, relaxing, dropping things into awareness, but also what's coming out, what's the response from awareness, being aware of a situation. Often, myself, basically the first response is don't know. You know that may not last very long. You know, some of you can quite generally grab hold of an opinion quite quickly. <laughs> Follow the checking is just you know, we'll just hold our opinion back for a moment. Look, look at what's the quality help, are you helping, trying to help. Oh, you've got your own angle on something, or you really want to do things that everybody feels good about. Just checking it, holding it. So you, you know, and then you realise if the more you do that, then the, the quality of good intention, in my experience, is it, it comes up. You do it. And you haven't got all these stories in your head about you were right and you did it good and they should do you know, you that and he and she and them and it just you did good and it's finished. You know, you just get a sense of something bright and clear and completed and fine. That's all you want, really. You don't want to have a whole trophy of thing, great things you've done because that's painful too. Because then you start looking at all the wonderful things I've done and said, and then so you either got to do more of them, compare with other people, or look down on other people. If 
for not having done the wonderful things that I've done, or whatever, you know. But just to really have that quality where you can just do the good and let it go. Just because that's clean, that's, that's straight, that's uncluttered. And you're able to act. You don't have to have a sort of complicated code. You just try to get that intention, look at it closely, study it, learn it. And because intentions tend to happen rather quickly, they flash. Often it takes quite a bit of time to really get there and, and know it. But that's another thing. You know, we, we, is mindfulness, you just sort of Stay there, reflect, hold the intention, hold the heart carefully, get the feeling for it. There's something about the direct feeling of intention that is unerringly accurate. The thought about it can be very deluded. The reasons why I'm doing things, and what I mean, and how I'm going to help, and how I'm this and that and the other, and what people need, can be very deluded. So the storyline, you want to just... Well, maybe so. Could be right, could be wrong. But the you know, intention, the Buddha says, it cannot be. It cannot be that skillful intention is accompanied by an, uns- an un- unpleasant feeling. Skillful intention is always accompanied by a pleasant feeling. That's <laughs> uh, pleasant, like it's bright, wholesome, not speedy, not... And so he's staying with that. Yeah. So part of our meditation practice is sometimes just to deliberately pick up the qualities of goodwill, reflect on people, people we like, people we respect, people we have problems with. And just can that be there? And can I, instead of going with that sourness or that hurtness, just may you be well. I, this is my possibility. I don't have to be stuck in a negative response towards you. No matter, and then as you develop it, it becomes no matter what. For I guess for most of us, there is limits on how how, how much good your goodwill can work on. But you're trying to increase that potential. To at least it's not going to come out with sourness and violence and dismissiveness. It's going to come out with something that I, I want to live with. Because intention's all you've got, really. You don't have a future. You do not have a future. You just have the present. And the present, naturally, the form of it will change. And we'll call, we call that the future. But really, you don't have a future. You have, you have the present, and the present context internal and external must change is subject to change and how it changes internally is dependent upon your intention intention doesn't mean deliberation, it means the impulse of action that arises in your mind the impulse towards action that arises in your mind the action could be to say something to think something, to remember something it could be a small action like, um, you know, that wishing to, you know, rising up sense of, you know, or it could be something not verbal, but just gladness, love, kindness, generosity, eagerness, fear. That first flutter, 
That's, uh, that's what we're catching, that very point. Yeah. That's all you have, really. The rest of it, who knows? Body, breaks down, break down at any moment. Future, don't know. People come and go. You know, the whole fabricated world, you can't have it. Intention is something you can't get away from. Yeah. So this is your thumbprint. This is the mark. This is your karma. Intention is this. This is the one you, you can't get away from. The rest of it is stuff you can't hold on to. <laughs> so why don't you actually focus on what you can't get away from and get that right <laughs> and see how the rest of it sort of shapes up around it. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge, you know, because it's a real act of faith, you know, because we can scheme and figure and organize and power and, you know, ability to manipulate and get things going, and it seems very impressive. You know, the big wheeler dealers in the world be doing the big things. But you realize, what have they got? the end of the day it comes down to what have they got at the end of the day the whole tinsel world one day you're Colonel Gaddafi you know you've got it all chucked out (laughs) 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 nothing and you're left with your intention (laughs) <laughs> that's the story isn't it power politics in out top athlete break your leg out finished you know businessman crash finished you know what do you got really so this is this is the uh, you know the, the, we say the veneer aspect of it what can we bring forth? Because if we can find ways and means to bring forth that intention and find the skillful conventions, keep refreshing them so they don't just get stale, then we also create an environment where our Dhamma practice is easier, with less clutter, less congestion, less, less doubt, less anxiety, less fear to have to deconstruct. The life is cleaner brighter, easier. And it's purely for this that the Buddha gave the teachings. Anyone?